So the last time we had a drive-in service is when we actually kicked off this series in Romans 8. And in that message, I pointed out how this one chapter has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. It's been called the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden and the highest peak in a range of mountains. The reason Romans 8 is because it, it powerfully and beautifully and uniquely articulates the gospel of Christ. And as we have seen the past nine weeks or so, Romans 8 has certainly not disappointed. We have certainly seen some wonderful truths about who we are in Christ, what is real about us if we are in Christ. Things like no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been set free from the power of sin and death. We are alive in the Spirit. We're children, we're sons and daughters of God. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Spirit who helps us in our weakness and suffering gives us patient hope as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We are strengthened by the Spirit who prays for us. We're confident that all things work together for good because we've been called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to justify and glorify and conform us to the image of Christ. Like These are incredible truths. These are powerful truths. If you are a believer in Christ, I hope you are resting in these truths this morning. God calls you to turn from sin and death and trust in his son and rest in his son. And then in verse 31, the Apostle Paul begins to wind down this train of thought in Romans 8, and he does so by asking a question. What then shall we say to these things? So what should we say to all the things that have come in Romans 8? And if you've read the entire book of Romans, everything that has come up to that point, what should we say to these things? How can we summarize all that Paul has been writing, all the truths that he has been writing in Romans 8? How can we capture it and reveal the heart of it? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the heart of Romans 8. If you are in Christ, God is for you. That God redeems you in Christ, that he sets you free from the power of sin and death, that he gives you the Holy Spirit, that he makes you alive, that he makes you a son or daughter, that the Spirit is helping you in your weakness, that you have this incredible hope, that he's working all things together for your good, that he's conforming you to the image of Christ. What can you say to all that? God is for me. God is for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the implied answer here is no one. No one can. Now, this does not mean that there, there will never be no thing and no one ever against us. But what Paul is saying here is that the opposition will not change God's heart towards you. The opposition is not more powerful than the truth that God is for us. If God is for you, if the sovereign king and creator is for you, what power, what person, what circumstance, what sin could ever defeat you or ever destroy you? And yet, and yet, we do face opposition. Sin and circumstances and suffering, other people, they will seek to discourage you and try to defeat you. And there are things that will cause you to doubt God's love for you and his power in your life. So the Apostle Paul closes out his thought in Romans 8 by pressing this issue for us. How do the incredible truths of the gospel answer the oppositions that we face? So next week, Pastor Paul is going to conclude our series in Romans 8 by looking at how the gospel answers opposition in suffering. And this morning, I want to focus on verses 31 through 34 
and look at how the gospel answers the opposition of accusation. And so I want to look at two things. First, I want to look at our, to borrow a phrase from our culture currently, our canceling hearts. And then I want to look at our non-canceling God. So first, our canceling hearts. In verses 33 and 34, Paul sort of specifies this question of who can be against us by asking two more questions. Who shall bring a charge? Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Like, who has the power to condemn you? Who, who has the power to make such accusations that can affect you and even ruin your life? Uh, let, me, let me play Captain Obvious here for a second. Our culture right now is divided. Our, our society is divided. And as I've pointed out before, one of the characteristics of this divided society is cancel culture. Man, how great was it like six weeks ago when we were all united, when COVID brought us all together? <laughs> how great was that? Wasn't that quaint? <laughs> didn't, didn't that seem so long ago when we were all like, for a moment, it seemed like we were all on the same page? Thank you, COVID. But now, here we are again, back into, and maybe even amped up than, than, than before COVID, in this divisive um, splitting up into camps and, and, and you see this cancel culture again starting to take hold and to rage. This, this idea that an angry mob of whatever group can, can set its sights on an individual that, that said something or supported something that they didn't like, that they deemed outside acceptable belief. And, and so through the reach of social media and the power of shaming, like they will get this person canceled meaning they will lose their social status or lose relationships or even lose their jobs and their livelihood. And, and there are examples all over the place, but one recent example of cancel culture that I, I found particularly interesting is the example of Chris Hodges, who is the pastor of the Church of the Highlands, which is the largest church in Alabama. And it's also one of the most diverse churches in Alabama. What did Chris do? What did this pastor Chris do? Did he say something offensive? Did, did he sin against someone? No. He liked a post on Facebook. He, he, he clicked the little heart and made it red. And, and, and what he liked was a conservative commentator that some people feel is a little bit too extreme. Or a conservative commentator that some people just didn't like his viewpoints. And so by liking this commentator's comments, by liking that post, both the housing administration of Birmingham, Alabama, and the public school system stepped back from relationships with Church of the Highlands. You see, this church was present in the public schools, present in assisting the housing authority. They were serving thousands in their community. That They were loving their community well. They're being the hands and feet of Jesus in their community. And because Pastor Chris liked something on Facebook, the housing administration said, sorry, we can't be in relationship with you anymore. And the public school said, sorry, we can't, be, we, we can't serve alongside you. We can't have your, our reputation marred by you. And look, apologies didn't help. The, the, the fact that there was this longstanding relationship of serving and loving the community, the fact that this was a diverse church, didn't matter. Cancel culture had to have its pound of flesh. Can, cancel culture had to take over and had to have its effect on Pastor Chris. You see, with cancel culture... There is judgment without mercy. There is atonement, but no forgiveness. 
And in our society, cancel culture has the power to accuse and to condemn, to change how people view one another, to to materially affect and destroy a person's life. And the concern with cancel culture is this, is that unchecked power to accuse and condemn is dangerous and threatening. This is why we have We strive for fair and just laws and and court systems so that we are not victim to false accusations and unjust condemnation. This is a very real problem. And it seems like it's only gaining strength. But let's take a step back for a second. Let's take a step back and recognize while cancel culture, as we experience it, may be somewhat of a new phenomenon. It's as old as sinful humanity. Cancel culture is but an expression of our bent towards shaming and accusing and marginalizing others so that we can have control. We we don't need a social media mob to cancel each other. We've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. And look, I know there are people in this parking lot and maybe people that can hear my voice in the neighborhood. You have experienced shame and accusation. You've had your sins and your failures thrown in your face. You've had your faults used to condemn you. Or maybe you've taken stands for righteousness and goodness and you've tried to help others. And, that, and you had your actions twisted to make it appear you were harmful and dangerous. And does that not hurt? Does that not wound deeply? To, to feel the shame and the accusation When someone close to you or someone you trust or someone you're in relationship begins to make accusations, it can start to imprison you and really keep you at the mercy of the words and actions of others. You can can be in this emotional prison of shame and become its slave. Or how often do you do this to yourself? How often, because of your sins and your failures, you will just beat yourself up over and over and over, and you think, if I shame myself enough, that'll be good. This is how I show, I show I'm sorry, is if I shame myself and beat myself up, and so that shame shuts you down, it controls you, it keeps you in this state of guilt and defeat. How often do you cancel yourself? And here's how we can deal with this. Here's how we can deal with when when people try to shame and control and manipulate us through our failures and our faults and our brokenness. We begin to respond by, well, I have to assert myself even more strongly. I have to assert myself so that this person can't control me and shout me down. And so now we have just this battle of wills going back. Who can get the most angry? Who can get the most emotional? Who can marshal their words and their rhetoric to, to shout the other person down or argue the other person down? Or, or I'll have to uh, establish myself like, hey, this is who I am and I don't care what you think about me. And, and so we just give ourselves over to pride. Like I think of, uh, how, how many of you have seen the movie The Greatest Showman? Great musical. I thought it was fun. And, and sort of the main song in that, the showstopper song, This Is Me, hey, that's a catchy song. One of, one of my favorite punk bands, Newfound Glory, did this cover of it and it is so catchy. I mean, I probably rocked out to that song like three or four times last week. I mean, it is a catchy song, but what's the premise of that song, if you've heard it? The, 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 sort of the, the story there is a group of people who have been ostracized from society, and, and they want to come out from the shadow of that being ostracized and being canceled, and how are they going to do that? Well, by asserting my identity, 
asserting who I am. This is me. You can't tell me, you can't put me down, you can't tell me who I, who I can and can't be. Look, as much as that sentiment may, we, we may like sort of connect with that sentiment and say, yeah, don't let other people put you down. The way that that's being approached is through pride. Like the answer is pride. And what that does is it just heaps fuel on the fire. It doesn't end cancel culture. It actually makes it worse because now you have two sides trying to cancel each other out. This is what we do. This is how we try to address judgment without mercy and atonement without forgiveness. And this really leads into another dynamic that not only do we experience cancel culture from others, that how often have we done this to other people? How often have you shamed and accused other people? Look, I'm not talking about needed correction and calling someone to repentance and wanting to see them change, but shaming and accusation born of your sinful anger and your need to control. When you didn't want repentance from them, you didn't want to reconcile and forgive them. No, you wanted them to feel terrible because they violated almighty you. How often have you used shame to manipulate and control? How often have you demanded atonement, but you've never granted forgiveness? How often have you given judgment but never mercy? How often is you, have you thought, man, as long as I can keep, people, keep, keep this person feeling bad, as long as I can control them, I can get what I want out of them. And so there, you put this in this position where if you don't do what I want or if you cross me too far, look, I'm going to burn you down emotionally, spiritually, and maybe even materially. Cancel culture isn't something new. It just has a bigger scope through social media. We've been masters at canceling, shaming, and accusing each other all along. And here's the irony in all of this. We who don't want to be judged by God, we who bristle at the idea that God would judge us, are the harshest and most vindictive judges. We offer judgment with no mercy and atonement with no forgiveness. And this is what happens, friends. This is what happens when judgment and atonement are devoid of the gospel, when we, when we remove the gospel from the equation, this is what we're left with. Apart from Christ, we are self-righteous shame-slingers and shame-slaves, heaping accusation and condemnation at each other to control and manipulate, slamming the sins of others to cover our own sin, beating ourselves up with self-pity and allowing others to control and manipulate us because we so badly need their approval. What crooked and twisted hearts we have. Friends, this is what happens when we step away from the gospel. This is what our culture has been given over to. This is sort of the whirlwind that they are a part of. This is the quicksand that they are a part of. And no amount of law no matter pious talk about reconciliation and unity is ever going to get us there because there is no mercy and there is no actual forgiveness and atonement in the way our culture deals with these things. Our canceling hearts are a problem. But as scary as shaming and accusing and canceling can be, they also provide this wonderful contrast to the beauty and power of the gospel. In other words, cancel culture makes the gospel ring out all the more truer and all the more beautiful. 
So we may have canceling hearts, but praise God, our God is not a canceling God. When shame and accusation come crashing in, the gospel responds, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. When condemnation and canceling make their demands, the gospel responds, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul is drawing on legal imagery here. Who shall come into the courtroom where God is judge and make accusations? Who gets to determine whether you're guilty or not? Or whether you get condemned or not? Who justifies or judges you? Other people? Yourself? Paul says God justifies. If you are in Jesus Christ, whoever could condemn you? I know you're weak, and I know you still sin. I know you struggle. I know you're aware of your mess. And I know sometimes you mess up big time. But if you are in Christ, who could ever condemn you when it is God who justifies? Well, what court could you ever be tried in? Like, look, if you, we recognize this in our legal system. If you're not happy with one judgment at one level, you bump it up to the next, and you bump it up to the next, ultimately the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court rules... That's it, because a lower court can't undo a higher court's opinion. And if in the highest court in the universe, in existence, the declaration is no condemnation, God has justified you through Jesus Christ, then what other court could you possibly be tried in and found guilty? This is the power of the gospel, no condemnation. Well, what court of man or angels could ever overturn that verdict? And then whose voice gets to speak with ultimate authority about your sin? Like the voice of your family members or your spouse or a coworker or the person on social media or your own voice? <laughs> whose voice has enough authority and enough weight to condemn you? Whose voice can either crush you or set you free? Whose voice is God listening to? Who do you believe God is listening to about you? Do you believe it is the voice of others and their accusations and condemnation? Do you believe it is your voice of self-pity and shame that God is listening to and agreeing with? Look, in our sin, in our sin apart from Christ, we absolutely deserve judgment. We absolutely do deserve to be canceled by God and judged for our sin. We do deserve death. But God's judgment doesn't come without mercy. And he provides atonement that we may be forgiven, as Colossians 2, 13 and 14 tells us. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Through Jesus Christ, we experience mercy instead of judgment. Christ is our atonement that we may be forgiven. Look, if you are in Jesus Christ, the only thing getting canceled is your sin. So Paul says, the one, Jesus Christ, the one who has died, but more than that, the one who is raised. The one who was raised in resurrection and who has ascended into heaven as king, the one who sits at the right hand of God, who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is your advocate. 
He is interceding for you. What this means is, is there might be a lot of voices saying things about your sin. There might be a lot of shaming going on. You may be piling on yourself, but guess whose voice God is listening to? If you are in Christ, he ain't listening to you. He ain't listening to other people. He's listening to Jesus, your advocate. He's listening to Jesus, the one interceding for you. Look, the full fury of a social media mob, the, the shaming accusations of a family member or a friend or a coworker, your own voice of shame are all pathetic mouse squeaks compared to the glorious, authoritative, true, powerful declaration of Jesus before the Father. This is the good news that Christ has ascended and is at the right hand of God because Jesus speaks a truer word. God isn't listening to the jokers. He's listening to his son. Why do we think that God listens to those other voices? Why do we think God listens to our heart when Jesus Christ, his son, is right next to him saying, forgiven, no condemnation, I saved them. And the father is like, you're right, because I sent you to get them. And there's this joyful agreement. And how often do they, I, I can just imagine them looking down in love and going, why do you listen to other voices? Why do you miss the fact that up here in heaven we're in agreement, no condemnation? We love you. We're for you. And so don't cancel yourself. Don't let others cancel you. When cancel culture rages all around us, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, we take refuge in our non-canceling God. This is the good news of the gospel. And so that God is for us, that the gospel does answer the opposition of accusation. Let me make a few points of application as I round out this sermon. First, because God is for you, because there is no condemnation, you have no reason to walk in shame. Like if you are battling shame, if you are living in shame, if you are walking in shame, hear the voice of God over you, no condemnation. He has not left you to your shame. He does not expect you to walk in your shame. You do not need to walk in your shame. You do not need to live in the false, condemning shame others want to heap on you or you want to heap on yourself. Like, look, sometimes we are going to feel conviction. Sometimes we are going to feel God, be, because of our sin, we are going to feel ashamed of what we've done and that is good, but here's what we do. We don't stay there. We run to Jesus knowing that he forgives. Christ never leaves you in your shame. Christ always wants to set you free from shame and set you free from sin so you may know freedom. We confess our sins, we re receive forgiveness, and then we stand in the status as a son, as a daughter, fully loved and forgiven, and we walk in the power of the Spirit. Look, to live in shame is to make a greater court than the court of God and to give greater voice to yourself and others than the voice of Jesus. Let's not do that. Second, we're not powerless. Friends, we're not powerless. Listen again. If you are in Christ, this is what is true of you. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has spared no expense to save you, to redeem you, to reconcile you and restore you. He gave up his most precious love, his son. And if he's given up his son to save you, how will he not give you everything else that you need to walk in victory, to walk in faith, 
to walk and live in obedience to Christ and to be on mission for his glory. He is continually for you. He's been for you and he's continually for you. Don't believe anything less and don't sell short his power and his grace in your life. Third point, that there is no condemnation doesn't mean we deny or hide our sin. Rather, because there is no condemnation and God is for us, we can confess it. We can be forgiven. In other words, while we stand against sinful shaming, and while the truth is there is no condemnation in Christ, and, and he sets us free from attempts, of people's attempts to control and manipulate us, we don't dodge confession and repentance. Like That would be a misapplication of this idea. We don't dodge confession and repentance. No, we run to Christ in confession and repentance because we know we can be forgiven. We know we're not going to be canceled. We know we're not going to be shunned and set aside. We're going to be welcomed. We're going to be loved. And the power of the Spirit is going to be to cleanse us and renew us. So the fact that there is no condemnation should make the culture of First City Church all the more ready to confess and repent that we may experience the grace of God and his freedom in our lives. We are also building a no-cancel culture. We call people to repentance and we walk in forgiveness. When we call people out, even when we do it firmly, we do it with love and grace, with an eye toward repentance and forgiveness. Cancel culture, shaming, manipulating our antichrist and anti-Christian. Friends, we're not accusers. We aren't trying to cancel people. We want them to know Jesus and experience life in him. So we're those who are always ready to forgive. Unfortunately, sometimes, church, we can be the worst at canceling people. We can play the part of God and decide that, hey, this person is under judgment and we're going to write them off. That is not the heart of our God. That is not how Christ has called us to walk. Yes, judgment is a real thing, and there will be people who face God's judgment at the last day. But ours is to call people to repentance. Ours is to forgive. Ours is to love, especially if they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And look, when we fail to forgive, when we want to cancel our brothers and sisters, guess what we're guilty of? Being on the wrong side of God. <laughs> if we're against our brothers and sisters, but God is for them, then who is on the wrong side of that equation? That God is a God who redeems and not cancels means we are those who champion redemption, not canceling. And finally, and I say this last one for emphasis, but really, this should be the first. Put your faith in Jesus. Like if you are hearing this message and you have never put your faith in Christ, if you have never turned from your sin and turn to Jesus and experience his grace and his forgiveness and his transforming power in your life. I want to call you this morning. That offer is held out to you. That grace is held out to you. You can know God is not a canceling God, but a welcoming God, a forgiving God, a loving God, a God who is your father. And so I want to call whoever hears this to put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him. Believe in him. In First City Church, as a community, as a family, can we commit to doing this? Can we commit to going into our city and calling people to this beautiful gospel, 
This beautiful gospel that doesn't cancel people, but forgives and sets them free. What would that look like if we stood in this community as a light, as a counter to the cancel culture by proclaiming Christ and his love for sinners? That would be a powerful, powerful testimony to the glory of God and the power of Jesus. And so in light of all of these promises, what can we say to these things? God is for us. Amen? Let's pray.